so let's look to our Lord together in prayer. And now our Father, as we're coming into your presence, we're so thankful for the, the promise that's made in Genesis 3.15 of Messiah to come into this world. And from our historic vantage point, the opportunity to see what took place when Jesus Christ entered via Bethlehem to die on Calvary in our place, our substitute for our sins. So, Father, the minutes that you give us to be together to explore your word are significant, special, priority. So, Father, again, what we're asking now is that you would warm these hearts, that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. As again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus and, and him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, several years ago in our bulletin, a program for worship services at a church in Syracuse, New York, was this message that was penned for the congregation. There was a gift for each of us left under the tree of life. 2,000 years ago, by him whose birthday we celebrate. The gift was withheld from no one. Now, some have left the packages unclaimed. Some have accepted the gift and carry it around, but have failed to remove the wrappings and look inside to discover the hidden splendor. But the packages are all alike. In each is a scroll on which is written, All that the Father hath is thine. Take and live. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because what you and I, if we were reading Genesis 2 very carefully, would come across... Is God saying to the man, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And yet here we find this bulletin print, all that the Father hath is thine, take and live. So we're exploring now in Genesis 3 the incredible conflict tension between death and life. Now, as we noticed last week when we concluded our But God series in Ephesians chapter 2, there are three types of death described in the Bible. There is, first of all, spiritual death. You and I come into this world physically alive, but spiritually dead. Spiritual death is the separation of the soul from God. There's a second type of death described in the Bible, and that's physical death. That is the separation of the soul from the body. When I am with grieving people in a cemetery, one of the outstanding characteristics of it all is that sense of separation. We've been separated from a loved one. There's the separation, you see, that comes with spiritual death. There's the separation, you see, that comes with physical death. But there is furthermore a third type of death, eternal death. And that's spiritual death made permanent. Now, you've got to fit the three deaths described in the Bible together when you are thinking about what's happening when God said to Adam in that garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. Yet he will walk out of that garden. So what does that mean? He walked out physically alive, but he walked out spiritually dead. You enter and I enter into this world physically alive, yet spiritually dead, we came into this world separated, you see, our soul separated from God. Now we've got to bear that in mind because what we're doing now is we're exploring this idea and the symbolism of that tree of life that's found here. And don't forget when we get to the end of this study, the tree of life where that 
second member of the Trinity died on that tree so that you and I wouldn't have to pay the penalty for sins and we would have life. It's profound. The first Adam and the last Adam. And what I want to do with you now is we're examining this passage together. We're looking for Christmas in the beginnings. What we're going to do now is to try to spot the Messiah in this passage. And we're going to simply draw out for us three significant effects that God has upon fallen humanity. And the first effect comes out of verse 8, down to verse 13. We're going to want to take some notes along in our Bibles this morning as we look at how all the issues of the globe are really represented in these verses. But first of all, I want you to consider the effect here of God's presence, God's presence upon this fallen world. And now we're going to pick it up in verse 8. Adam and Eve have disobeyed God and have eaten of that fruit. And notice what's taking place here as Moses describes it in verse 8. And they heard the sound of the Lord God. Fascinates me that in the Hebrew, the word heard is closely associated grammatically with the word obey. So they heard the sound of the Lord God. Now notice that it reads capital L-O-R-D, that is the relational covenantal name for our sovereign one. The Bible in Genesis opened up with in the beginning God. It didn't read in the beginning Lord God, did it? Humanity had not yet been created in verse 1 of chapter 1. And so the relational aspect still to come. Moses is brilliant in the way in which he's phrasing things. So here you have now the relational God looking for Adam and looking for Eve, who are trying to separate themselves relationally from their creator. That's the story of humanity today. So the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the relational God, is there in the garden. The word garden in the Hebrew carries with the idea of an enclosure. Interestingly, quote, protected space, unquote. Fascinating. That the evil one would go into protected space. Right when you think you've shielded yourself, evil breaks in. Families can't isolate themselves. People can't isolate themselves. What we have to do is to not isolate ourselves, but insulate ourselves through the work of the Holy Spirit and God's Word. And so now they heard the sound of the Yahweh God, the Lord God, the personal God, walking in the garden. The great gardener is making his rounds in his garden. In the cool of the day, look at what comes next. And the man and his wife hid themselves, and they hid themselves from the presence, not merely the description of God, the description of the personal God, the Yahweh God, the Lord God. There's humanity in a nutshell. Humanity attempting to distance oneself, ourselves, from God and God's presence. Now, Peter experienced something similar when he was out fishing with Jesus one day. And Jesus had told the fishermen, put out into the deep, let down your nets for a catch. Simon Peter is telling him, look, we, we've, we've toiled all day and all night. We're weary. But they do it. And there are so many fish that the boats begin to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me. 
for I am a sinful man, O Lord. What interests me is that nobody talked about sin up to that point. He's just busy at work doing what he's an expert doing. Fishing. But holy sovereignness is broken into his boat scene. God has a way of doing that in our lives, you know. So now, they're trying to distance themselves, and here's what fascinates me. It reads, The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees, plural, of the garden. Now, hadn't God, in chapter 2, say to Adam, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day in which you eat of it you shall surely die. When the evil one broke in upon the scene in that enclosed space, he challenged and questioned that, creating in the mindset of Eve this idea that God must be a cosmic killjoy, that you would be restricted of that tree. Evil is a way of so narrowing our focus, we focus upon the one thing we can't have rather than upon all the things we can have. Notice how, frankly, freedom-based God's offer is. You can have all of these trees. Now, where are Adam and where are Eve? Hiding where? Among all the trees, plural. In the very privileged setting that spoke of God's tremendous provisions, where they could have had and experienced all the liberty under God's lordship. They tried to violate God's lordship while maintaining their sense of liberty. Interesting. They're not not hiding around the tree. They are hiding among the Trees. Plural. Hiding. Something's gone wrong. There are four significant relational breakdowns described here in verse 8 and following. We'll draw them out as we march through these verses. But the first is what I would call a theological breakdown. It's the relational breakdown between humanity and God. It's very vertical, you see. It all starts there. They're distancing themselves from God. And we've got to figure out when we're watching the news at night why things are the way things are. You've got to go back to the beginning. For you history majors, during World War II, the Germans had French factories producing for the German war effort. Get this. To prevent sabotage, a writer tells us, the Germans had spread out production. One factory might make the chassis of a truck, another the engine, and so on. But now the laboratory, the French underground, had developed an abrasive and, of course, placed it in the hands of the underground workers in one of these truck factories. You can see where this is going. The worker might smear the abrasive on the bearings or some other vital part. Truck would roll off the assembly line. In fact, it might roll along fine for 50, 60 miles and all of a sudden mysteriously break down. For a stretch of 10 months, 90% of the trucks put out by that one assembly plant developed this strange problem of breakdowns. The truck's problems did not develop from wear and tear. The truck's problems stemmed from the beginning. When you and I look at, whether it be personally or globally, the breakdowns of life, We've got to bear in mind this is not due to historical wear and tear. Uh Uh-uh. We've got to go back to the beginning. An abrasive has been applied relationally. 
So now there in the midst of all their freedom, God, the libertarian at this point, is pursuing them. And here's what's interesting. They're not pursuing him. He's not hiding from them. They're hiding from him. This is the theological breakdown. This is our relationship, you see, our relationship to God. So now, spiritually dead, but physically alive, we find these ones now trying to figure out, how am I going to be able to cope? And in the meantime, we come across verses such as this. No one understands. No one seeks for God. In Romans 3, verse 11. Or you fast-track it, you see, to Revelation chapter 6. End times, and we're told the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave-free, they hid themselves. They hid themselves. In the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Now you've connected Genesis and Revelation Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand it? So now you've got distancing. Now let's connect some relational aspects to this. Let's say you've got some co-workers, you've got friends, people you're burdened for, and they're distancing themselves from God. You say, if only I can get them out on a Sunday morning, and we'll go verse by verse, and they're going to have their hearts illuminated by God's Word. They seem so indifferent to God. In some cases, yes. But in other cases, they are so God-conscious They want to distance themselves from God because that's their means of coping with God. And you've got to figure out which camp are they in or where on the spectrum they're at in terms of coping with the breakdown of humanity. There was an abrasive applied in the beginning, you know. Theological breakdown. So God's pursuing, and neither Adam nor Eve are. But you get to verse 9. The Lord God called to the man. He's asking questions. He's drawing him out. And he said to him, where are you? Notice the interrogative, the where question. Now God's omniscient. He knows where Adam's at. The question is, is Adam willing to engage God now that God has taken the initiative? Will he remain silent because God is speaking? Are you engaging God this morning with his word? In verse 10, Notice the response. And he said, I heard, again from the Hebrew, zoom. try to pronounce it for you, that zoom. It carries with the idea not only heard, but it is also a connotation of the word obey. And he said, I heard the sound of, of you in the garden, the great gardener in the midst of his garden." I was afraid. And now fear has broken in to history. Do you see how because of the theological breakdown, one of the, one of the results is fear? Who are you afraid of? Breakdown of health, loss of job, loss of loved one. So often, fear has something to do with a sense of loss, you see. 
Well, here's Adam, and he's among all that God had created for him. There was only one restriction, and he's pondering all that he could have had. And now here he is and says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. Here is your second breakdown. This is the psychological breakdown. It's man broken in relationship to self. Woman broken in relationship to self. For the first time, they are self-conscious. They were meant to simply be God-conscious. But now they are self-conscious. We read of body shaming. We read of self-esteem issues. And people view that as the cause. I would argue that's the effect. Physician would say, that's symptomatic. I've got to get to the cause. Well, the cause is the theological breakdown that leads to the psychological breakdown where they are no longer comfortable in their own skin as to who they are, what they are about. I was naked. And I, I hid myself. musicians. Years ago, George Gershwin was talking to a friend on a crowded beach of resort near New York City. Sounds and shrieks of voices pierced the conversation, biographer tells us. Clanking tunes ground out from a nearby merry-go-round. Barkers, hucksters shouting themselves hoarse on the streets. From underground came the deep roar of the subway. Gershwin listened and then said this to his friend, quote, All of this could form such a beautiful pattern of sound. It could turn into a magnificent musical piece, expressive of every human activity and feeling with pauses, counterpoints, blends, climaxes of sound that would be beautifully constructed. But it's not that. It's all discordant, terrible, exhausting. The pattern has been shattered. The pattern's been shattered here. And humanity's trying to figure out why things are the way things are. But the theological breakdown that you and I spotted there back in verse, in verse 8 and 9 leads to the psychological breakdown that you spot in verse 10 I was afraid because I was naked and I, I hid myself. And to this day, and people are trying to distance themselves whenever fear breaks in and they don't want to be revealed. And so God now moves from the where question to the who question. What I want you to see is that there, are, there is grace in the questions. He's got to draw out the guilt in order to apply the grace. But if you simply apply the grace without addressing the guilt, people are going to not understand even the basis or the reason for grace. Do you see the value of objective guilt? It's necessary to comprehend objective grace. We can't separate them. So now, verse 11. Who told you? Well, now, you and I know that as far as we're concerned, thus far there's Adam and there's Eve. Huh. Who told you? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, and I want you to see the wording here. The woman. The woman whom you gave to be with me. Pause. 
Ever blame God for your circumstances? Ever blame God for your job? Ever blame God for whatever it is educationally you look back upon and say, if only? Ever blame God for that job? Yeah, you were gracious enough to give, but it's you who gave to me. Thus my circumstances. Notice the culture of blame here in the midst of the culture of guilt. This is Adam's approach now for coping. Once exposed, no longer hidden, then he's going to have to blame rather than distance. Oh, there's so much here of life. The woman whom you gave to be with me, Adam, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I command you not to eat? And the, woman, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I Notice where and the and I ate appears. It's at the end of the sentence. Not at the beginning. He's even trying to distance himself grammatically from the eatery. Well then in verse thirteen, the Lord God said to the woman. What is this you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me. Notice where the and I ate appears. Again, at the end of the sentence. It doesn't begin, I ate because the serpent deceived me. The serpent deceived me and I ate. Trying to grammatically even distance themselves. The breakdown of the family is occurring here. Looking at various descriptions of Winston Churchill's involvements of leadership in World War II. And I spotted something that reminded me of a story that Kent Hughes had written. If those who knew the Churchills could choose one moment of the year to relive, it would be Christmas, even during World War II. There would be a nostalgic chamber of the mine when the entire family would gather together, where Churchill would write to his wife, the most precious thing in my life is your love for me. You are my rock. I depend on you. Rest on you. As Adam's voice echoes in that garden, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the woman says to the Lord God, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And meanwhile, Churchill would say that the Christmas tree revealed in all its splendor a hundred white, <coughs> excuse me, wax candles gleaming picture of light in the darkness during the world war such a conflicted time yet with my family around me he wrote I was at peace within my habitation but there's no peace within this habitation because you now have spotted the third breakdown not only did it begin with the theological breakdown, relationship of humanity with God, which led to the psychological breakdown, the breakdown of self with self, but now the third breakdown, the breakdown of self with others. Adam is now conflicted with Eve, and Eve is now conflicted with Adam, 
And you know how Christmas can be when extended family, close and somewhat distant, are being brought together. And for some people, that can be a very challenging thing relationally. Because the theological, the psychological, and the sociological breakdowns can create a sense of reminder when questions are posed and people are gathered together around, around that around that tree. All that the Father hath is thine. Take and live. Because there's a gift for each of us left under that tree. The bulletin read. Meanwhile, you've got to shift gears. And so you move to the second effect. We've pondered not merely the effects you see of sin upon humanity, but we're pondering the effects of God upon humanity, fallen humanity. And the first effect was the effect of God's presence upon fallen humanity, where people are distancing themselves from God. But here's the second effect. It comes out of verses 14 through 19. It's the effect of God's promise upon fallen, this fallen world. God takes the initiative. Now, he speaks first of all to the serpent. Now, this word serpent is used again and again throughout the scriptures as a title that's given to the evil one. It's fascinating to me to see how it's used again and again and again. And it comes across very loud and very clear here when God now says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. What's fascinating to me is that in military history, ancient military history, the conquered foe was forced to go prostrate in the dust as the conquering general would then place his foot upon the conquered foe and use the conquered foe as a footstool. Out of the field so that the general population could observe the conquest. In other words, he bit the dust. So now this title for the evil one, which appears and again and again and again now throughout, throughout the scripture, from not only Genesis, but on through Revelation, because in Revelation chapter 12, what you would find if you were trying to connect all of this together, and you get, for example, to chapter 12 and verse 9, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. But now what I want you to see, because you are connecting the presence of God to the promise of God in 14 through 19, is the Christmas promise. The beginnings of Christmas. Verse 15. God says here, I will put enmity. Notice who's taking the initiative. It's God. And God is saying, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring. Now that's a very important word in Genesis because for some translations this morning, depending upon what you're using, the word is a seed. Between your seed and her seed. Already then, God is making a statement of grace. Didn't God say, the day in which you eat of it, you shall surely die? And yet here now, God is saying that there's going to be life when you walk out of this garden, so to speak. 
which means he is now replacing immortality with progeny. But who will come of the seed? When you begin to track the genealogy, genealogy comes from the word genus. We get the word genesis. You are getting genesis and genealogy in the, in the chronology of Jesus. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. And what captured my attention in reading it in the Hebrew is that the same word is used where it says, he shall bruise your head, as is used for, and you shall bruise his heel. So the issue is not the verb there, the issue is the object. The head versus the heel. There are three battles that are being depicted here. The first one's personal between the woman and Satan. That particular day. That's the personal battle. The second is the continual battle. We see it in terms of the nuclear proliferation of North Korea and how will the United States respond? The nuclear pr proliferation of Iran. How is Israel viewing all of this? We have said that there's theological, there is psychological, there is sociological breakdowns relationally affecting things not merely then historically, but today, contemporarily. But there is a third. It's called Armageddon, that final battle where there's this mortal blow to the evil one delivered by, at this point, someone of progeny of Eve, which means there is grace in Genesis 3.15. There's Christmas in Genesis 3.15. And Herod knew it. Herod knew it when he was trying to put the babies to death in Bethlehem, you know. But here comes life in the culture of death. Or, as Harper Lee's award-winning book, To Kill a Mockingbird, would help us to understand. Maybe you've read the book or seen the movie. There's this little girl, Jean Louise Finch goes by the name Scalp. Her father, Atticus Finch, town lawyer, solid principled man, lawyer. One day, Scalp comes home from school, tells her father about some problems she's having with a teacher and other students. In an effort to help her get better, be better, function better, here is Atticus's advice to his daughter. First of all, if you can learn this, Scalp, you'll get along a lot better with all kinds of folks. You never really understand a person until you consider things from their point of view. Until you climb into his skin and walk around in it. And so the second member of the Trinity climbs into human skin, walks around in it. And the Christmas story is unfolding in front of your very eyes. Christmas in the beginnings in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Adam and Eve have to be listening in at this point. Meanwhile, Eve's eavesdropping. You pick it up in verse 16. The woman. The woman, he said, I'll surely multiply. It doesn't really say, uh, multiply your pain in childbearing. Notice the word pain, it appears again. In pain you shall bring forth children. But that is grace in the midst of pain. Because he's saying, you're going to walk out of this garden. I said in the day in which you eat of it, you shall surely die. But they walk out. Why? Yeah, they were spiritually dead, but they were not physically dead. They were spiritually dead, but physically alive. They have opportunity to respond to grace. Well, they respond to the grace of Genesis 3.15. To kill mockingbirds alive here. 
But then he adds something that's going to be incredibly fascinating in the, as you and I have watched the gender conflicts unfolding in the news through the course of these days. Your desire shall be for your husband, he shall rule over you. And so I camped upon the Hebrew word tekua at this point before that word, and it carries with the idea of a woman's, quote, turning, unquote. To or from her husband, resulting in the fact, or because of the fact, that there's this sense of who will rule over who, who will take unfair advantage of who. Meanwhile, the serpent is continuing to process the threefold battles of the personal, the continual, and then that final Armageddon. As Churchill is bringing reconciliation in the home, even in the midst of global battle. But then Adam, where in verse 17, not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, five times God uses the word eat. This had to be painful. The eatery is brought to the forefront when he says to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, who had listened to the voice, in other words, of the evil one, he got passive, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. And there's your fourth breakdown. This is the ecological breakdown, the breakdown in relationship between humanity and the environment. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Draw the arrow from verse 16 where God said to the woman, I'll surely multiply your pain in childbearing to verse 17. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Adam's saying, enough, man. You are continuously bringing back that which I am trying to forget. But God uses the guilt in order to bring forth the grace. But then check out 719. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And off to the side, right in chapter 2, verse 7, And the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And now we've got the incredible battle of life versus death as someone bites the dust. And you're processing the significance of all this. We're in a cemetery in New Hampshire, these words, sacred to the memory of Amos Fortune, who was born free in Africa, a slave in America, purchased liberty, professed Christianity, lived reputably, died hopefully. And now you're ready for the final effect. The final effect. It comes out of verse 20 through verse 24. The thirdly, I want you to consider the effect here, God's protection. God's protection upon fallen, this fallen world. We've dealt with his presence and how humanity distances from God, but God does not distance himself from us. He pursues us even though we don't pursue him. No one seeks him, Paul said. You move from the presence of God to the promise of God and the Christmas promise of 315. But now you move thirdly to the provision, the protection of God in 20. And notice this is where I see Adam becoming born again. He is about to go out publicly with his testimony of faith. He and Eve have been listening. They've been eavesdropping. Because the man called his wife's name Eve. In other words, he believed what God said in 3.15. Now he's listening to God. 
because she was the mother of all living. And now he sees life in the culture of death. And while he will not experience immortality, he will be able to sense progeny because from Eve will come this one in the genealogy, tie genealogy to Genesis, and the idea of the seed generation by generation, generation, genealogy, Genesis, see how all this fits? Christmas in the beginning. And then the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God does better than they did in verse 7. They sewed fig leaves together, made themselves loincloths. And God evidently has to sacrifice something to clothe them. There's imagery there, you know. But then in verse 22, you and I are told, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, speaking of the Godhead, knowing good and evil. But mankind knows good and evil now experientially, not merely theologically. Now, lest he reach out his hand, in other words, try to pursue this on the basis of good works rather than on the basis of grace, lest he reach out his hand instead of God reaching out his. And take also the tree of life and live forever and think of Jesus on the ultimate tree of life, dying on that cross to save us from our sins, and out of death will emerge life. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He's been displaced. You ever been displaced? Find yourself in a different setting geographically, in a different setting occupationally, relationally than you thought you were meant to fit in. He has been displaced. And I think of what Dr. Paul Tournier in his book, A Place for You, writes. The words of those of a young student with whom I had formed a deep friendship settled in my mind, sitting by my fireplace, explaining his difficulties, trying to look objectively at what was going on inside himself to understand it, and then as if summing up his thoughts, looked up at me and said, basically, I'm always looking for a place for somewhere to be. Adam. You just so fit in the garden. And now you, the one who is the gardener, have been displaced from the garden. And you were meant to have dominion over the earth, and now the earth has dominion over you. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden, placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. As John Milton in Paradise Lost put it, knowledge forbidden, suspicious, reasonless. Why should their Lord envy them that? Can it be a sin to know? Can it be death? Later, they, looking back at all the eastern side, beheld a paradise so late, was their happy estate. Through Eden, they took their solitary way. But there is grace with the cherubim and that flaming sword. Because in Exodus chapter 26, verse 31, what you and I are told here incredibly at this point is that Moses, Moses, was told, make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen for the tabernacle, and it shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. What was God doing? He was symbolically making a statement with that veil tabernacle that the veil was guarding God's holiness from humanity. Cherubim, 
imprinted upon that veil. But on that cross, the tree of life, where Jesus would die for our sins, that veil was torn in two, not bottoms up, top down. Grace. And the culture of death comes the Christ of life. And you pull it all together. And that bulletin in New York, which read, there was a gift for each of us left under the tree of life 2,000 years ago. That would end with these words. All that the Father hath is thine. Take and live. Do you live in Jesus? Let's stand together. Christmas in the beginnings. In that one verse of 315, you've connected Christmas to Good Friday. Born of a woman. Even Herod couldn't keep it from happening. Ultimately who would die in our place for our sins. Crushing of the head. Leading to that final battle still to come. And now when we see all the breakdowns, the theological, the psychological, the sociological, and even the ecological, we see that ultimately the new heaven and the new earth where everything is put back together again, is all by your grace and by your design. So you start with us. And if we know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, Father, you're putting us together by your grace and your design. And for this, for this we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.